Hey everyone, I'm Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Welcome back to the Everything That You Need to Know series, a series of different videos where I break down everything that you need to know about the crypto market, the stock market, and the economy. Today, we are going to be doing a deep dive into the infrastructure bill that was signed into law yesterday, what it includes, how they're going to pay for it, and sort of next steps. The rest of the video is going to be a deep dive with my friend Ben Wheeler, who you might know from TikTok as D1 Wheeler, a geopolitical content creator. He's very, very smart, has experience in politics, and we did a deep dive onto why the infrastructure bill passed the way that it did, as well as diving into the history of why things are the way that they are right now. I section off all of my videos, so if you want to just listen to the first couple of minutes where I talk about everything that you need to know about the infrastructure bill, but you want to do a deep dive as well, everything will be sectioned off below. I will also include my notes below as always. And if you want to go ahead and hit subscribe, give a thumbs up, that always helps. So thank you. Without further ado, let's talk about the infrastructure bill. This is actually a pretty landmark achievement for US politics. It can be very frustrating sometimes to watch the gridlock that happens, especially when you're talking about the debt ceiling and other things that just seem like a government should be able to get done. But getting this infrastructure bill across the line was a pretty big achievement from a bipartisan perspective. Biden signed that into law on Monday. Now they have to get through the Build Back Better agenda and how you can think of the breakdown between these two build back better versus the infrastructure bill so build back better things like healthcare and higher ed workforce housing child care and preschool the social infrastructure of society and then what was signed into law yesterday was the infrastructure investment and jobs act so the physical infrastructure of society it was 550 billion in new infrastructure investment over five years you're like where'd the other you know 700 billion go and that comes from including additional funding that is normally allocated for highways and different projects so it just has to be built in there what it includes so it includes about 110 billion for roads and bridges 40 billion for road repair for bridge repair which is the biggest investment in bridges since the Interstate Highway Act. And it will also include climate change mitigation. So when we think about coastal flooding, that's a very big worry. Like, is Florida going to drop into the ocean? Who knows? And there's actually $11 billion solely dedicated to transportation safety. So really focusing on reducing crashes and fatalities, which will be really important considering we are a car-driven society. And also working around pipeline and hazardous materials, which is really great because that's starting to leak into our water sources. There's also going to be one billion to reconnect communities. So there is divisive infrastructure. So infrastructure that was built, such as highways, that toured directly through communities. A city where I'm from, Louisville, this is a very big problem where you just have infrastructure that's built in a way that totally disrupts a way of life. There's also 39 billion for transit and rail. So that's going to upgrade the infrastructure, provide transit service to new communities, replace the vehicles with new models, zero emission models. It also includes 66 billion for passenger and freight rail. So that's going to fix up the Amtrak, uh, which is the largest federal investment in public transit in history. It'll also include $12 billion for high-speed rail and different partnerships. So if you think about the way that we get around right now, there's a lot of people that can't get where they need to go. So this is really going to provide an opening of communities, hopefully an opening of ways that people can get around, explore new opportunities. So that could be a really good flywheel, not only for economic growth, but for how we progress as a society forward. If you're able to go to more places, you're going to learn more, you're going to do more things things hypothetically. And so this is probably a net positive. Investment in public transportation is always a net positive. I might be biased because I don't have a car and I bike everywhere. There's also $65 billion investment in improving the nation's broadband infrastructure. This is really neat because this is something I personally have beef with. They are going to lower the price households pay for internet service by requiring federal funding recipients 
to offer a low-cost affordable plan by creating price transparency and by boosting competition in areas where existing providers aren't providing adequate services. So basically, they're like, hey, telecom providers, hey, cell phone tower companies, time for you to be held accountable, which I think will be a really important. Um, pricing transparency might seem like whatever, but... They've been asking the government to do this since 2009. So it's a really big deal. The telecom industry is obviously has a ton of money, so they've been lobbying against this. Pricing transparency in this very weird internet society that we have set up where everybody needs the internet. There's also going to be 17 billion in port infrastructure. So those of you who have been following the series, remember that I talked in depth about the supply chain crisis. So hopefully that can also build some better policy around ports and, and make them so you can stack more than two containers at a port at any given time, which will be very important. Important you know, saying important. There's also getting 25 billion in airports to address and repair and maintenance backlogs, reduce congestion and emissions near ports and airports, and promote electrification and other low carbon technologies. There's also going to be 7.5 billion for zero and low emission buses and ferries, delivering thousands of electric, <laughs> electric school buses. We'll see how the electric vehicle school bus turns out. There's going to be $65 billion for rebuilding the electric grid, thousands of new power lines, expanding renewable energy, which will be really important. And also that there's going to be money going towards making that overall system very resilient so protecting it from drought from floods from cyber attacks which is very very important because if the electrical grid goes down as we saw in texas earlier this year that could be very very bad there's also going to be 55 billion to upgrade water infrastructure that will replace service lines and pipes so communities have access to clean drinking water this is super important because safe water and sanitation removing lead pipes from schools dealing with wastewater and stormwater programs actually having like waste sector job training programs will be important if you don't have water you cannot survive like speaking of infrastructure there i don't know if you all can hear this but they're doing the trash outside of my house and the way that they do this is they have they each have an individual trash can uh, that they have to dump into the trash truck and it's really interesting how we manage waste and part of the thing that i've been thinking about like a theory that i have is that we don't know how we are an economic entity with the supply chain we are expecting things to be delivered to us as soon as possible like that's just what we expect but there's also this expectation we get the stuff and then we get rid of stuff so that's the human economic cycle but we never see how things get to us and we never see how they leave us so there isn't that sense of responsibility of being a consumer it's like okay i know that i'm causing so much extra stress on the supply chain when i order something off amazon like i just i ordered a new mouse off amazon the other day and what stress do I cause on the supply chain by doing that? I threw away the, the plastic packaging on the mouse. Where does that go? So I, I think there's like also an opportunity for us to visualize how we interact with infrastructure, how we interact with everything. Akila aside, back to business. The cyber attack money, so 50 billion going towards protecting also from drought, floods, and I'd love to see 50 billion just towards cyber attacks because I'm very worried about that. Cybersecurity is probably going to have to be one of the biggest investments that we see in society moving forward. We are so vulnerable right now. Robinhood just got hacked. Like we, we just don't think enough about our, our, our cybersecurity. And if we want to go full crypto, if we want to have CBDCs, we're really just going to have to like have a big sit down and this is how you protect yourself online. There's also going to be 21 billion to clean up Superfund and Brownfield sites, so cleaning up old coal mines so kids don't fall into sinkholes. We have electricity, we have rail, we have broadband, we have climate resiliency, we have environmental projects, we have electric vehicles, we're serving underserved rural communities. This is really just a great first step in sort of rebuilding, rethinking about how we have infrastructure that has been tragically underinvested in. What are some 
high level thoughts on what's going on. So there is a lot of focus, right, on how do we get more jobs? How do we get more people employed? There is currently a lot of people quitting their manufacturing jobs, non-economic reasons of for not looking for work, which could be concerning. However, if there's child care tax credits in this Build Back Better bill, if there's a little bit more help with, you know, getting people back to work, I think that could be beneficial for, for a return of the workforce. There's a 2 million cumulative shortfall of immigrants since 2016 we've just been losing immigrant workers the labor force is just kind of funky right now that could put pressure obviously amongst other things on how this infrastructure bill is actually executed then i think from from the spending perspective so i made a tiktok about this and everybody was like "Mm, this is gonna be inflationary Ah. Ah, it's not a bad thing for the government to invest in infrastructure. One thing that's kind of funny in the infrastructure bill, when they ask how they're going to pay for it, I'll I'll talk in depth about the different ways that they're thinking about it, but they say the infrastructure package relies on generating 56 billion in economic growth, resulting from a 33% return on investment on the long-term projects. You know how it goes. So the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, there's these pay-for provisions in the bill. So they're like, we don't have to worry about raising taxes. There's all these pay-for provisions. Don't worry, everything's going to be taken care of. CBO is like, no. This is probably going to add about 250 to $350 billion to the deficit over the next 10 years. Also, lawmakers were kind of like grabbing for threads on how they're going to fund this. So they were like, we're going to use unused COVID relief funds. We're also going to use uh, sort of these pay-for things. So crypto, which I'll talk about as an example of the pay-for, putting these like regulations and legislation around things in order for it to pay for the bill. They also are saying that they're going to get $53 billion from states terminating their pandemic unemployment benefits early so pushing jobless people to go to work essentially they're saying that everything is going to be paid for so really at the end of the day like how are they going to pay for this it it is going to add about 200 to 300 billion dollars to the deficit and the deficit right right now is at 2.7 trillion dollars obviously it's not great but this stuff has to get done so it, it will add to the u.s debt it's not stimulus like how we saw during the pandemic right so it's not the same type of like okay here you go american people here's a 1200 dollar check because that's going to be inflationary because when you get a 1200 dollar check likely what you're going to do is you're going to save it or you're going to spend it i mean people go to spend their, their 1200 dollar check or when you have the easy credit lending that is going to create more inflationary pressure versus something that is a physical investment in infrastructure that is focused spending on building bridges, on on jobs, because all of that stuff is going to repurpose itself within the economy. So it's a little bit different than the inflationary pressure of how we would think of monetary and fiscal policy. So that's kind of how you can think about it with regards to inflation. All this stuff still has to get done. It could just be like thrown throwing wheat into the wind and hoping it flies. To address the crypto part of this, they're going to hand crypto broker definitions over to the US Treasury. And essentially what happened with this part of the infrastructure bill is they were like, hey everybody, you're a crypto broker, which is not great because that requires network actors like node operators to report identifying information for crypto transactions that they have literally no way of gathering. So this would just be very, very bad for the crypto industry. But the treasury is is now in charge of sort of that definition and they're going to soften the language and make sure that it's not going to be node operators and miners that are reporting as brokers, but rather something that is a little bit more easy for people to comply to. Also, Ron Wyden and Cynthia Loomis introduced new legislation that are going to limit the definitions. Hopefully that 
will not be so detrimental to the people who are literally the backbone of the crypto industry. I think it's great. I think it's really exciting that we're getting this kind of stuff done. I'm a huge fan of infrastructure. I think that there's going to be a lot of worries over the next few months around higher food prices. There is just structural shortages across the board. If we can begin to invest upfront in things to prevent sort of like this, this big tipping point where it's okay, things are getting very, very bad. And a lot of this does result from broken supply chains from a pandemic, just in general, you have to have infrastructure, you have to have roads, you have to have a way for people to get around, you have to have safety measures in place. That's how you can think about the infrastructure bill. Ben and I talk in depth about everything that's kind of led up to this with regards to the US government, the structure of the US government, what could the U.S. government look like moving forward, as well as talking a little bit more about the labor shortage, talking a little bit more about how the Build Back Better bill and the infrastructure bill tie together, and just how you can think of all this stuff and, and sort of build a framework around it. But yeah, thanks so much for hanging out, and let me know if you have any questions, comments, concerns, and yeah, thanks so much for hanging out, and I will see you tomorrow. Bye. What's interesting about infrastructure spending is that it's always been contentious in American history, simply because Pretty early on, the fight was over whether or not we should have a strong federal government and they should pay for roads and bridges. Some of them were like, no way. And then at a certain point, Jefferson was like, this is ridiculous. We need to be connected to each other. Otherwise, we're just going to go bankrupt. And you get to the 1830s and 40s, and they start building canals. By the time they're finished, they're out of date. Technology is advanced. So it's hard to predict the future. And so a lot of infrastructure spending always just seems like it's wasted because by the time it's finished, people moved on. So everything that's passing right now, it's okay, this will be solid for 10 years. But in the next right. 10 years, we're gonna have to spend money. Like that's why the whole Joe Manchin having a conniption fit about the moving to clean energy exclusively over the power grid thing was so like dramatic. Mm -hmm. So that they're about to spend, I think the next one's what 1.7 trillion or 1.5 trillion. So even more than this one, you're about to spend so much money on that, it's gonna be out of date with <laughs> by 2035. Wait, okay, so just zooming out. So let's say, yes. so we have this infrastructure bill that got signed in today, got passed on November 5th, Correct. right? Yep. And so so mm -hmm. this is just one of a series of different infrastructure bills. When they're passing today, what does that cover versus the one that they're going to pass here in a few? So this one's physical. So it's bridges, roads, like electric school buses, it's waterways, it's everything that is physical. But the other bill is like social and human infrastructure. So like infrastructure, people think, oh, it's like bridges, but it's actually more than that. Infrastructure is childcare as much as it is roads. It, it helps us get our life moving. So you need good infrastructure in society. This bill does cover, it covers the physical part. The second one will be more expansive, cover childcare and various other things. They remove generally, this one's the physical one and the next one will be the social spending. And so this one today passed things like the electricity grid, right? Rail, broadband, et cetera. And you said mm -hmm. that there is a lot of contention around all these different things, mostly about energy. Because of the way the United States Senate is set up, it empowers states, which means someone from West Virginia, their industry is coal. We need to phase out coal because we can't use it anymore. It's just, it's dirty and we have a climate crisis. So they're trying to phase it out. A big problem in that is that we need to move to clean energy because there are a lot of coastal areas here in the United States. You have New York City, Florida underwater, and ideally you don't want that to happen. <laughs> there are a lot of, there's a lot of contention over it. A lot of people want to move to clean energy and we have the area and space to do it. Only 4% of the United States total land is actually used and, and that we live on it, which is absolutely insane. And that's from a, yes, that's from a 2013 a Bloomberg article, but it's a big loss because now you have to keep the coal on there. You have to keep using coal 
and this can really drive things down. And so if you're not moving to a fully clean power grid, then you're disadvantaged. You have to rely more on oil until you can phase that out. So we've got this resistance from states who are like, we have to protect our constituents. If West Virginia, if Kentucky, for example, phases out coal entirely, it would be really bad. But it was a very big deal that this bill got passed. It was a landmark yes. movement because they were able to actually agree on something. So what was the tipping point in making everybody at this across the line? It was really Republican votes in the House and the Senate that pushed it over the finish line. And now everyone's going to go home, even those who voted against it are going to say, look at the new bridge yeah. you got you in your district. That's everyone. That's every congressman or congresswoman's favorite thing to do is vote against the bill and go home and say, look at what I got you. It's a very big deal. It was the finish line. Everyone got something out of it. The tri-state area in New York, as well as Kentucky and Ohio. So everyone got a little bit of something. So it'll improve people's communities. And that's what made it so popular. I have a labor question, right? So they keep on saying that this is going to create jobs, but as we both know, there is a big labor shortage right now, especially in manufacturing. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on that? Like, how are they going to, they can create jobs, but who, who are going to fill these jobs? Like, is that covered in the bill? So in terms of how they're going to cover these jobs, I have zero idea. The jobs question the workers to fill it is like really a paradox here, because the theory is that, oh, we will always have more people to fill these jobs. But that's just not the case. Our industry is advancing to the point where you need humans. And eventually, in, it's hurting American workers. Like immigration's dropping, people are leaving, and yeah. it's a problem the United States faces. Now people are losing their jobs to automation already. And having a worker shortage is just going to expand the speed in which that happens. They're predicting mm -hmm. a 2 million cumulative shortfall by the end of 2021. So even if we can create all these infrastructure jobs, everything that they're talking about, electricity, rail, broadband. So it's just interesting to think, okay, we're going to go invest in this. We're going to go get it done. But we have this massive shortage in manufacturing workers in allowing people to come work here. That dichotomy, I think, is going to be a, bit, a big issue. It is an issue. But there's not much the government can really do in that aspect. Have you ever yeah. seen the movie Field of Dreams? No. Base, uh, the plot's dumb, but okay. the basis of it is, and the quote says, if you build it, they will come, right? And so the notion is the government just has to pass the spending and get it through because they'll eventually come. Yeah, but it is an interesting thing. Americans are still convinced, even in these polls, that immigrants are taking their jobs. I don't know. It's a weird thing. I, I do want to remain focused on infrastructure build. I'm gonna oh, I'm yeah. gonna ask more questions about this because I think it's not something that we like talk a lot about. Is this very evident labor shortage um, and people just like quitting their jobs in droves? I talked a little bit about it in my most recent piece where I was yeah like people are quitting their jobs because they think they can be sheep coin millionaires. So you have the idea that you know if we build they'll come, but how long do you think that will take? If, do you think we'll have some sort of inflationary pressure because of that? Or like, how do you think the government is going to have to respond in addition to this infrastructure bill because we have this labor problem? It's really a matter of the executive being able to speed it along as well as the legislative. I don't say this as a partisan, but the last administration truly gutted immigration and all the processes in that. They weren't able to stop it, but they gutted everything. The timeline to become a U.S. citizen is incredibly longer now. The ability for asylum is horrendous. Just earlier this year, everything filled up. So it's a big problem. And so it's not just like making the process faster. It's also a trust thing. And that people are looking at the United States, not just over the past four years, but this year as well. I don't want to say the United States is not stable because it is stable. You're going to have a hard time convincing people from industrialized nations who have the skills that you would, in theory, need, it's going to be very hard to convince them why they should come here. And, and that's because... Does that answer your question? 
Yes, does. Because so people are not incentivized to come here. But the reason that they're not incentivized to come here is because they look at the US. Do they see us fighting about the debt ceiling? And they're like, I don't want to be in a place that can't even figure out their own stuff. Is that kind of the problem or what's keeping people from coming here in your eyes? In my eyes, the United States doesn't really have a healthcare system when you compare it to these other nations. So it's the matter of we don't have the healthcare systems that those have. And so while we do offer, in theory, more opportunities and a larger ceiling for wealth, not everyone's bought into the American dream. In terms of how the United States could appeal to people, the, I don't, the United States didn't see an increase in immigration, but it did see a very big image boost abroad with the election of President Barack Obama. Yeah. Simply put, whether you like him or hate him, he represented a changing of the guard. He talked about what we could be in a way that no one else really has. And if you want to build it back up, whoever succeeds Biden, whether it be in 2024 or 2028, needs to be someone who talks about what we can do rather than wanting to, both Biden and Trump talked about returning to a previous time. Got it. Maybe this is reflective in the infrastructure bill too, where it's like really just focused on repairing, but you're saying the next infrastructure bill under hopefully somebody who is a little bit more hopeful for the future of the United States would be more on building things rather than repairing. Would that be like a metaphor that we could use? The United States needs workers and the United States needs to build. They need to build back better. That's what the bill's name, uh, especially if a president can inspire people. Not that I, I think it's an important point to just talk about the United States and like objectively what has to be done because it's just mm-hmm. becoming very clear that there's dissent in, in the populace. The government with regards to like the infrastructure bill almost needs to build back better the, the image of the U.S. government alongside building right. rails and building broadbands. It's just objectively an important point, no matter how you lean politically. All of us are impacted. Some of us impacted more than others by the bad decisions of our politicians. Yeah. And I would go one step further, like at least two more election cycles to build up that trust again you're going to need election cycles. Yeah, I guess I'd just say about appealing to people is there's a deep rooted flaw in the United States system here that um, is only going to get worse. And that is, and you saw it in the Philippines, particularly and it happened two years before it happened here, is that those who supported President Duterte in the Philippines, they moved more right. And those who opposed him moved more left. And similarly, when Trump was elected, people who support him grew more right and then left. So you had this lengthening divide. And a problem with this divide is that our system doesn't account for that big of a divide. So if you look at a place like Germany, where I think they only have one house, basically there are far right and far left parties and they're able to get elected, but moderates can also supersede them. But the way the United States Senate works is that every state has a fair share of people, right? So California has the same amount of say as Wyoming, who has 500,000 people in it. And so you run into this weird dichotomy where those in rural areas grow more red and those in these big cities in California, they get increasingly blue. So you have this big divide. And by 2045, I believe, is predicted that 70% of the United States senators will be controlled by 30% of the population. That's kind of, that's a problem, right? I think people will tell you, well, the founders designed it that way, but Oh my gosh. That's a huge uh, disparity. Two threads I want to pull on there. So number one, this disparity that we're seeing, so 70% of senators being controlled by 30% of the population because people are moving out to the coast, or what is going to cause that seismic shift of people? Liberals are bunching. And so think about that, like when you move someplace, you're more liberal facing individual, you want to move to a big city. In addition to that, Republicans are also moving out of cities. So essentially we have the polarization of politics 
because of the polarization of our physical places. Democrats are going to concentrate in smaller areas. Because they're concentrating in smaller areas, they end up getting less voting power because of the way that everything's designed, where it's creating this huge disparity. And it's not just the U.S. Senate, it's also the House. The House has 435 members, but it's supposed to increase every 10 years or every two years with a reapportionment to match the amount of people there. In the Constitution, I think they say 30,000, but that's just insane. I think the numbers on that go up to 10,000 representatives then. I believe China has more than that, but that is a lot of people, but it's locked at 435. In 1919, the, the party switch is in full effect and the Republicans are growing increasingly rural and more people are growing into the big cities. And so they become, Republicans are losing power in the House. So they say, we're not reapportioning and they give everyone the middle finger. So then when the Democrats take power, they don't have the full veto proof or they don't have like the trifecta. So they have to negotiate with it and they go, okay, we'll lock it at 435 then so we can reapportion. It's just been locked there. That's a mess, right? It should not be locked. One of the reasons given for it outside of the Republican thing is that they were sick of doing construction on it, which I was like, that's annoying. And I don't choose to believe that. So therefore now both the House and the Senate prioritize land, right? Rather than people. Because the House is locked at 435, robs people of representatives. So you can't just not do that. Like the population has grown so much. It was locked when we had the 123 million. So and it's what, 330 million now? Yeah, about, yeah. So, so almost double. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But then even when you ask people, should we expand the house? Yeah, but maybe only add like 100 more people. She just picked a random number just because you think it sounds good. That's like me out. <laughs> so really a fix to that is I'm, the radical thing is to say to abolish the Senate, but that's never going to happen ever. But the thing to do is uncap the House. Uncap the House and then therefore add more representatives, do it based off a cube root rule or the Wyoming. So the population of Wyoming dictates how many representatives are in each district. But that also has an issue because population of Wyoming is expected to grow at a higher rate than the rest of the nation. And so, right, right. It's supposed why? to grow. I have no idea why. So it's supposed to grow at a what that happens is that we get less representatives over time. In addition to that, when they start losing people, you gain more. So you can't make it dependent on one state's population gain. I made a whole uh, video on this initially, and then I made a TikTok on it. Yeah. It's when you go off just one state's population, it relies on one state to either gain or lose people, and it creates a problem. But also, you could argue, if say Wyoming gets to a million people in 30 years, you go off the Wyoming rule. Why should these a million people in Wyoming have to deal with one representative? It's a big state. So, you know, it really, it should be based off the cube root rule. So the cube root rule is, it takes the cube root of the U.S. population and that determines it. So it would be 693 members in the House of Representatives. Um, yeah, we're at right. 435. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. And I believe one of those numbers is, in, or two of those members aren't voting because they belong to D.C. and Puerto Rico. So it's really 433. Nice. Yeah. Perhaps the most critically like terrible part about all of this is that the solution to fix it is seems to be a broken apart on partisan lines, which to be expected because one party would never hold the house again. However, a big argument in support of this is that it allows third parties to exist outside of the Democrat and Republican realm, because now a district in Chicago who would traditionally just have one representative would have three or four that allows for more diversity in opinion and political views to flourish and it also would weaken the hold that big money has on people because when now corporations have to triple or quadruple their spending on it so there's a, uh, a huge issue with with just like how the house of 
representatives is composed relative to population growth. And right. with regards to that as well, there's not really any room for diversity of thought or diversity of opinion because right. you have to exist in like these two polar edges. Is is that kind of like a summary of what's going on? Yeah, in a way, if people have larger districts, therefore they have to be more broad and everything. Americans are trying to be pragmatic about in their head, they think they're being pragmatic about it, but their arguments on it don't make any sense. But in their defense, they haven't known anything other than the house being locked at 435. Broadly, Americans are resistant to change, like just objectively, there's not really that desire for shift. Right. You could tell Americans, we'll give everyone free ice cream and they 50% of them would hate it. Um, no. no, thanks. Right. So it's uh, Americans hate change of any kind, even though this would be good for them and it would really help the country. People say it's a partisan grab and maybe they're right, but I do think um, there's something there for everyone, right? So it's a little bit of something for everyone, but people get all worked up and get emotional about it. And I think another thing that I wanted to pull on and talk about that you brought up was in another thing that people get emotional about is the founders, the constitution. Do you have thoughts and opinions on this document that was written before we had technology, essentially, unless you count like the wagon as technology? Right. Like, how do you think about that attachment to this document? In terms of so, building a society for the future. The founders didn't, so people are so attached to it, but the idea that the constitution is perfect and can't be changed anyway, is like a new thought. So the founders, Jefferson famously believed it should be revised every 19 years, which sounds very impractical. They fully believed that they would come along at some point and fix it and change it. And that would be the whole thing. And that's why it's so vague. A majority of the reason is that power to the people, but it's very vague because to a certain extent, they believed they were going to come back. And can, can you really blame them? If you knew what was going on at the convention, they were nearly stabbing each other. Everything was meant to be discussed later. And so that's why right. it's a vague document. But we use this very literal interpretation of it. So there used to be a whole thing uh, where it wasn't very literal, right? The literal interpretation of the Second Amendment is a new thing. That's like a very new line of thought. It was always just believed well-regulated. That meant the well-regulated part meant something. The new shall not be infringed is a relatively new line brought upon by the Supreme Court. But yeah, so throughout American history, they believed that the Constitution was bendable. People go after Lincoln for various infringements, and I got no qualms with Lincoln. I say he did what he had to do. But the Radical Republicans um, in Congress, Thaddeus Stevens, who was from Pennsylvania, they nearly wanted to rip up the U.S. Constitution. And by a certain portion of the public, that was supported. And so like this whole idea that it is imperfect, cannot be changed, really comes about in the Woodrow Wilson administration, gets expanded more leading up to FDR. And it comes this new thing where it's like, Constitution's perfect, don't criticize it, there's no issue with it. And that probably coincided with the need for patriotism right around the world wars and having people right. like really get behind the United States. And, and ever since then, we've been attached to it. It's like towards the end of the Civil War, where they threw away all the things that they had achieved through Reconstruction, and then the need for patriotism in World War One and World War Two. So that kind of creates that. But also the Constitution becoming like instilled in that part of it, the contributing factor is when Truman drops the atomic bomb, right? Congress is like faced with this question. We can either drop it at any time. So who do we, who do we give that to? And the, the answer is, let's give it to the president to do it, right? Which is now the president's the one making the chief decisions on all wartime things rather than Congress the way it used to be. And, and so when we think about that, maybe consolidation of power at the presidential level, have people have always been pretty attached to the idea of a U.S. president, though. Has that sort of, no? Is... The president Joe Biden has now 
would seem like crazy to someone like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who were like already crazy with their power. The idea of the U.S. president being this powerful person's new. I don't want to say it's like fully new, but it really takes off around Lincoln. Adams, Jefferson abused their power until the Civil War. Lincoln, Lincoln's the one using the power. And before then, people are just like caretakers, right? And then with the Reconstruction mandates a hands-on approach, Johnson just, we're not doing any of that. And then Grant comes back, he sends Union troops to fight a very bloody insurgency with the Ku Klux Klan. That really creates the pathway to a powerful executive, especially Woodrow Wilson. And then, of course, FDR really puts the upper echelon on (laughs) how powerful a president could truly be. And that's, I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong, but it is an ever-changing world and a Congress nearly expired on their debt. And can you really rely on them to vote on an airstrike or whatever every single time? Also, this uh, Congress not having more powers is a Congress problem. I like Hmm. to point to, uh, do you remember when the Syrian civil war happened in 2014 or 2015? President Obama sent to Congress, he said, I would like you to give an authorization for these airstrikes. They said, you thought, dude, and they sent it back to him. And they're like, you actually already have that power because Congress has this whole thing now where they, if they vote on wars, it's very unpopular. People lost their seats because of the vote on the Iraq war, because of their vote on the Vietnam war. So they're like, you know, the president can do all that. I'm not voting. And so it becomes, it's this, because it's so vague, the president can expand his power at any given time. But it also leads to the government being built entirely on norms and on the honor system. I guess like the thread I'll pull on first is the the politicians. How do you think about this sort of short-termism in being elected? So everything that they seem to do seems to be built around them being re-elected. Like, how do you think about that in context of what you were just talking about? They don't want to vote on war because they're like, oh, I won't get re-elected. Is that actually a good public official? So you, you're elected to represent your district. And so there are two trains of thought on it. There are those who are like, the people in my district have elected me to make decisions for them. Maybe the people in my district want to abolish NASA, but they elected me and I think, oh, I didn't even realize they elected (laughs) me. So I'm like, uh, you know, that's kind of, no, that's dumb. So they elected me in my brain. So therefore I get to make the decision on it, not them. Then there's other train of thought is that you should hundred percent represent your constituents and their opinion on everything. And so that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can lead to irrational decisions. Like sometimes you do need to vote yes on war. It, it is two years. So by the time they have six months to like fulfill and actually do things, and then they have to begin fundraising again. But the issue with DC is that it's not a meritocracy. To a certain extent it is, but it's also about seniority, how long you've been there. If you are, for instance, James Clyburn, been there for ever, Sean Caston from Illinois 6, is that he is new. So he doesn't really have much power. He can vote on things. But in terms of introducing bills and getting things done and pushing through an agenda, he doesn't really have that ability. To James Clyburn, who's been there forever, he has a seniority. He has these uh, committee assignments. He gets to push his agenda. We were talking about expanding the house earlier. In terms of a singular housemate, expanding the house makes it much more of a nightmare because the impact your representative has on you will decrease substantially, but also you'll know that they are fighting for your concerns. Should they expand it? Maybe. But also at the same time, I don't know. I have the ability to be like, nah, you guys are trash. Out, right? If, yeah, depending on who gets elected, it is good to have an exit right. route for them. But a solution to the House two years is public financing. And that's a debate on uh, something that uh, I believe one of the progressives in the House one included is that the American public should pay for campaign finance, not uh, the people and corporations. The people say, if I support a political candidate, why can't I donate to them? 
And that is a legitimate argument, right? If, say, Trump runs again in 2024, why should the people who hate him have to pay for his campaign? But on the same note, if I support whoever, if I support Dwayne The Rock Johnson, his 2024 bid, oh, yeah. If we're ever going to get a dictator, it's going to be that guy. We're all going to be like, and he's going to be like, I'm going to be dictator. We're all going to be like, yeah, we love The Rock. Hell yeah, let's go. Public financing is the solution to the problem of people having to fundraise constantly. And then they're controlled by their donors or whatever. I don't know if it'll ever get anything. It's a solution. I don't, the whole frame of government is so messed up. It's caused a lot of gridlock. Going back like 20 minutes into the conversation yeah. about the 30% in the U.S. Senate, that's what the argument over statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico is. The Democrats realize that they are not going to hold the Senate ever again. And everyone says well, that's dramatic. Things change. They said in 2006, the Democrats would never hold the House and the Senate again. But then they did. And then they lost it again. Now they have it again. So, you know, things change, but that's why Democrats would stay ahead for DC and Puerto Rico, not just because they're American citizens who deserve representation, which is a valid reason. Everyone should have representation. Doesn't make any sense uh, if you're paying taxes, which Puerto Rican residents don't pay federal taxes, but people in DC, they pay the highest tax rates of anyone in the United States. They should have representation based off that, but also Democrats need that representation in order to have a say in the future of the country when it comes to the Senate. And a 70-30 split is pretty severe. So we have a huge issue in office where people are underrepresented. We don't know how we're going to fix that. Zoom back to the main point. We could just pass this really big infrastructure bill. We talked about jobs, but right now there seems to be we're building all this stuff, but maybe we're not investing in the root issues, the supply chain crisis. Like we're just patching stuff up. It's just policy, right? So like the issue with the supply chains and and for Long Beach, for example, is you can't have more than two containers stacked. You have all these boats that are just hanging out, but they're like, oh, I can't come into the port. I can't like stack containers once I get into the port. There's just all this really bad policy that's baked Mm -hmm. into the system. Not only do we need to build better, but how are they thinking of the the policy behind it? I do think the conversation over broadband is interesting because in theory, expanding broadband, expanding, expanding access and internet speed, That is a net good. Everyone likes to download things, be able to do things faster. I'm sure the stats on this, you've ever seen like the stats for when there's slow internet speeds, the American economy loses like $4 trillion, something like that. I'm never sure if they're ever accurate or something, but like, I think expanding internet access is good. But part of that conversation is also diluted because there's a certain level of policymakers who may or may not be influenced by a certain billionaire on Twitter who has this belief that you don't need broadband, you'll just do it all through his Starlink system. But there's a certain portion of them who are pushing, oh, let's invest more in that instead of running lines to rural communities, let's just have them link up to the satellite. And let's, oh, that makes sense. But it's also, we were just talking about being in competition with China and stuff about Taiwan, right? What happens when your satellites go down because of the solar flare? They go down because they've been shot down. Or Jeff Bezos and Lama start fighting in space with their satellites and one ricochets and hits. It creates a larger problem. They need to do these old school solutions. But what can often happen is that once they run those lines to a rural community, by the time that they're done, maybe the technology's changed. I'm still not convinced that satellites is the way to go. You do need to do these old school ways because that's what'll work, even though it may be out of date. And in terms of how they're thinking about roads, but most of the high-speed rails, have you ever seen any of the maps for those? Some of them are pretty wild. I dream of that. High-speed rail could revolutionize American cities and their suburbs, but the conversation often gets lost because people start fantasizing about what if we have a train from Chicago to Las Vegas, but that's dumb. I know that's not a very good, strong counter-argument, but like how many people commute to Chicago to Las Vegas on a daily basis? I'll give you an answer. 
zero. Or maybe you know, actually, if someone will prove me wrong, but like actually me and four of my friends go there every day. So five. <laughs> yes, you're right. A high-speed rail could revolutionize California. It could revolutionize Texas. And it could revolutionize the Eastern Seaboard, in particular New England, with Pennsylvania, New Jersey, D.C., Virginia, Maryland, and New York, and then New England. That It could revolutionize that. And then you connect those with a high-speed rail to the Rust Belt. And that is where all the people live. I don't know the exact breakdown of that, but 80% of Americans live to the east of the Mississippi. So connecting those rails along the Eastern Seaboard and into the Rust Belt that changes things, right? That helps people. But sometimes these high-speed rail conversations get pretty out of line when they're like, wouldn't it be nice if you go to Los Angeles to Tallahassee? And it's like, no, it wouldn't be nice, okay? Because at that point, I just fly. And also, they want to prevent the U.S. power grid from being hacked. And it's to my understanding that the U.S. power grid already is secure from being hacked because it's old. Um, It's analog. It's not connected to the internet, like the vital parts of it. Uh, really the only way to take out the power grid is i don't know if you remember but there were like snipers like four or five years ago who were shooting at the Mm -hmm. transformers i think additional measures to make sure it's not hacked is good because uh the stuxnet thing between the united states israel and iran back in 2011 or 2010 demonstrated that didn't really matter if something's not on the internet because you just need people to mess up eventually right they created this massive virus they spread it to everything in the world And so then all it took was an Iranian scientist to download something from his computer onto a sum drive. And then he plugged it into his computer at work and then it infected the nuclear uh, power plant. Really nothing safe technically, but if it's air gapped the way most U.S. power stations are, it is relatively safe. So I'm glad you addressed that because I think these sort of like protectionist measures are going to be really important because... What got hacked like earlier this year? A water plant? There was a water plant. It was the United States hacking Russia's power grid. Yeah. Uh, at this point, it's tit for tat. So the United States hacked Russia's power grid, but they didn't turn off Dude. the power. They just made it very clear that they had hacked it and let everyone know, rubbing it in their face, letting them know what could happen, which just seems to be most of geopolitics. But you saw what happened in Texas earlier this year, right? Okay. For whatever reason, they allow Texas to have their own power grid, even though they're not an independent nation. And uh, it, it went down, right? And it was the case six years ago. I'm not sure if this is true anymore, but there was a case where there was one singular maker for the power transformers in the United States. And it could take months at a time to create a new power transformer if one blew out. And we're talking like industrial size. By being able to have a few of those on reserve, that could be good if your power somehow goes out. But there does need to be significant infrastructure, significant advancements to it. You can secure it, but also you just want to expand power as well. And the government moves notoriously slow because it's, this is a huge cruise liner. It takes a while to get everything moving in the right direction. A little off branch story for you. Back in like the sixties or seventies, a small town in West Virginia, they needed a new bridge. They basically had a drawbridge that connected them to the other side of the river so they could then go places because the river had separated them. So the bridge was like decaying. They didn't have any money. And to a certain extent, their access was cut off. So the mayor wrote a letter to the U.S. government and they just ignore him. Yeah, we'll get around to it. And so he's pretty. this is a pretty smart strategy. He then wrote a letter to the, the USSR asking them for money, like foreign relief. Could you help us build this bridge? And the USSR was like, oh, we would love anything to embarrass the United States who is neglecting their citizens. So they like send people over, they send over reporters and this catches the eye of the United States government who like instantly is like, we're building a new bridge and they end up building a new bridge. But it was sometimes you need to be embarrassed. Yeah. Wow, jeez. I, so 
my final question. Okay, so there's a couple of like key projects in the infrastructure bill. So we talked about the electricity grid, we talked about rail, we talked about broadband. We didn't really talk about climate, which we can address another time, electric vehicles, and then rural areas. So access for rural areas. Which component of the infrastructure bill are you most excited about? Just off the top of your head. <laughs> I'm really good at pointing out flaws and things. In terms of what's most exciting, maybe, I guess perhaps the most exciting one is the money for the environment to clean up the coal mines and everything. I think that'll help a lot of communities. In Pennsylvania, there's this thing called Centralia. It's a coal mine that's on fire underground and it's abandoned and uh, pretty wild, but I don't know if they'll clean that up, but there are cases like that, not that are on fire, but they're hollow mine shafts beneath American communities and being able to clean that up for communities and being able to secure their water and make sure kids don't fall into sinkholes. The investment in airports will be good as well, making it faster and maybe making TSA faster as well. That's exciting. The Western water infrastructure is also interesting because they have a water crisis and the Hoover Dam is only going to decrease water. Nature does surprise the Western residents. In 2019, it was supposed to continue to go to its lowest, but it actually had record rainfall. That's something. Is there anything else that excites me? The electric school buses. I think the electric school buses are good. I don't know. I think it's in theory a good idea. Will it become an item of the culture war? A hundred percent. I'm not putting my kid on that. (laughs) (laughs) It'll definitely become part of a culture war and you'll have this weird thing where people are like, I'm rolling coal. Yeah, it's I I can definitely see it now. Someone's going to clip this on Twitter in five years and be like, wow, they knew. So you said you like to address flaws. Give me your top three flaws. It doesn't do enough for cybersecurity. Yes, I would agree. It, it is very hard to play defense, right? It's very hard to play defense in cyber warfare. It's not the same as it is in sports and in physical warfare. A good offense is not necessarily a good defense because just because you hack something doesn't mean they can't hack you back. What goes on in the Pentagon, their level of security, that's, that's the Pentagon's concern, okay? But American cybersecurity needs to be improved. You have private companies being hacked, American citizens being hacked. Left and um, right. Every right? time you turn yeah. around, one of them's getting hacked. It's jeez. Right, left and right. And it's at this point, it's what? Recently. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, Jesus. I didn't even see that. Um, the companies need, the government shouldn't pay for their cybersecurity, but the government should give them the tools to do it correctly. Yeah. And so it, there needs to be done more in cybersecurity. In terms of the power grid, the United States would benefit greatly from moving to full clean energy as fast as possible. Because not only does it wean us off fossil fuels and help the environment, in addition to that, there are just a lot of people on the global stage that we don't need to be friends with, and we're just friends with them because of the oil. Being a global superpower without global interests, by getting rid of your dependence on foreign oil, which the United States technically is energy independent. You'll have to correct me on that. But I'm pretty sure we export more than we import. Then fracking got messed up. If we can get more into clean energy with the power grid, then we can cut off the people that we should be cutting off, and we can leave entire regions altogether. I do think there needs to be more of roads. I think there needs to be, the roads need to be changed in such a way. They need to do something about roads. Our roads have so many potholes. I don't know anything about road design. I know nothing, but I know that whatever we have going doesn't work. And I also know road construction sucks. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to provide an anecdote as a cyclist. They're terrible. I think electric cars are an interesting possibility there because there's still be wear and tear on the roads. So I don't know. Thank you so much, Ben, for coming on and talking all about the infrastructure bill. This is super helpful in contextualizing everything that you need to know, not only about the infrastructure bill, but the history of this nation. So hopefully this was everything that you needed more. Ben, thank you again. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for having me on. It's great. Yeah. I hope everyone enjoys the video.
Remember, if you're going to yell at me on Twitter, you have to follow me first. Send a picture. Excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks for listening, everyone. And subscribe to Kyla. Thank you. Word up. All right. Yeah. I will see you tomorrow. Bye.